T-Bone He's on the other side T-Bone He's on the other side T-Bone Broncos Podcast on the other side T-Bone Broncos Podcast on the other side T-Bone He sets the tone Originates Opinionates T-Bone Musicality Originality Any day of the week Brian Cuts Podcast on the other side T-Bone Brian Cuts The talk space Where musicians matter Welcome to T-Bone's Prime Cuts on the Other Side, Episode 2. Today's guest, drummer Pete Thompson. Pete played with Silverhead, played with Ken Hensley of the uh, Uriah Heap Band, played with Pete Haycock from Climax Blues Band, Eric Bibb, Robin Trower, Robert Plant, Murray Head, Melanie Safka, Jack Bruce, Randy California. The list is endless with this guy. And... You've also heard him because he played the intro to my radio show for eight years. And the song you just heard, the intro to this podcast, he did it. He not only voiced it, he played all the instruments. In addition to being a great drummer, he's a great storyteller. Even has some stories about Bob Dylan, Garth Hudson, and more. Without further ado, here's Pete Thompson. Welcome to T-Bone's Prime Cuts on the other side. We're here with our guest, Pete Thompson. Pete, how are you? I'm very good, sir. How are you? I'm doing good. Yes, this is this is going to be fun to do this because it's been quite a while since I've um, I've, I've been uh, podcasted. You know, it's, it's been a long time, so right. it should be fun. I remember uh, interviewing you about was it on the ra- on my radio show about eight years ago? I think it was uh-huh. one of started off by i want to talk about this record far from the delta okay now i i I know that you uh the vocals drums bass and guitars on all songs yeah guitar solos on two wrote nine of eleven by yourself and co-wrote the other two so i mean very busy yeah you know what can you tell us about the uh, recording process my process um of recording is uh I'm very lucky in so much as I'm, I'm one of those people that have so many ideas. I basically get a chord sequence or a riff put down with a, with a click or a, or a drum loop. I have the choruses first. I always seem to get a chorus first. So I lock my choruses in and, and put multi-harmonies on it and things like that. And then I just play it over and over and over again, and I'll put the bass on. And once I've got a bass and a guitar track and, and some guide vocal where I know where the choruses are and where the verse starts and everything else i'll then go and do a drum do a live drum track um and then just place the guitars like a palette on a you know paintbrush palette and just put little colors in here and there stereo image and i spend probably way too much time on i i think it is it's just way too i have such a a high standard and the, the music that i listen to has a very high standard and and i respect so much my peers the steely dans of the world the deep purples of the world the white snakes of the world you know um daryl hall and john oates and 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 i'm a huge lover of soul music so the most important thing i I put down um is the feel of the track 
And if I, when I know that it's, and I'm very fussy, when I know that it feels good, then I feel like I can move on melody-wise and then start putting lyrics in. The biggest bugbear with me recording, and this this comes on all of my songs, is that generally because I, I, I find a hook line first, it has to make some sort of sense. So then I'll spend another month or so writing the lyrics and then I'll realize, <laughs> then I realize that the lyrics have nothing to do with the chorus. <laughs> Absolutely nothing to do with the chorus at all. And that, so, and I, and I run everything by my wife and my friend Rod here who lives with us. He's a guitar player in Silverhead with me. And he, um, and he says to me, uh, yeah, that's working. That's not working. Oh, that should be better. This should be better. And I already know it, but I have to pull somebody in to get an opinion. I sometimes farm out my demos to friends all over the world oh. to, to see what their reactions are. Not that I want any pats on the back, not that I want any praise, but if they say something good about it, um, I'm just as happy with, with them saying something bad about it because it's something I've missed. Because right. the thing is, when you're writing songs, recording, and playing most of the tracks yourself, uh, it's all you. If you've got any self-doubt, <laughs> you, know, you miss those, those finer points you can miss. And going back to the, the original point where I have too many ideas in, in the song, I'm just so full of ideas. I put all the ideas into one song. And then I have to lock it and shut it down for a, for a month or so, come back to it a month later and see if it gets me off. <laughs> it gets me off. I then start pulling guitar tracks out and I start changing the bass lines and everything else. It's all a nitpicking process, which I, oh God, I so enjoy it. It's such a big part of my life. And after playing drums for other people for like the best part of 50 years, always being a sideman, I've had, I've been in some of the best studios. I've worked with some of the best artists. And I say my peers are, are top draw. Oh yeah. And I try and, I, well, I guess it's competing. And everybody's different. Everybody's got their own thing. Sometimes I'll go back to a song after two months I think is finished, and I'll play it, and I think it's total crap. It's just crap. It's not. It's <laughs> the mood, you, have, you have, literally have to be in the mood for it. When I first set my studio up 10 years ago, I recorded my own band live in, live in the live room to get some experience. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And it was it was a, a all <clears throat> boy mistakes. I made so many. What was good, I knew I'd keep. And basically, it's always the drums, the bass, the rhythm guitars, and the guitar licks around the rhythm guitars. Yeah. And I'll strip the vocals off. I finished a song yesterday that I started recording in 2028, 2008. I finished it yesterday. Mm. I stripped all the vocals. I went to the back. I went back. Like, oh, I'd forgotten about that one. Mm. And I bought it up. And I really was, I really enjoyed what I was listening to as a backing track. And I thought, great. So rewrite the whole top line, rewrite the chorus, rewrite and everything else. And I finished it. Um, and even though that album has just come out, it's been out about two months now, is my, is my latest effort. I've just finished my fourth album. Yeah, I've read that. Yeah. Stuff that I'd already recorded that's been in the can for such a long time. And I just basically, I just went back and reviewed some of the songs that didn't make the album. And the reason they didn't make the album was because I kept bloody writing songs. Yeah. You know? And they and every song sounded a bit better than the last one, or it was uh, funkier than the last one. And so, which makes me go, should I go back and do the drums again? <laughs> blah blah blah. So it's it's all going back and checking, rechecking, and everything else. So my process is a complete mind boggler. <laughs> but um, 
I, I eventually end up with something that, that that's good enough to put out there. How was that, how was that for a short answer? <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the things that I loved about this record, if you know my background in the radio show, it, I always had a freeform radio show where I played. I mean, I, I, I prefer, you know, certain kinds of music, but I played everything. And this record has so many different styles on it. Yeah. I mean, you know, they all, it, it, it sounds different from track to track and that I really enjoy that. Thank you. It's one of the things I've tried to do on all three of my albums that I've got released at the moment. You can be, um, you can be set in a box. You know, you can go down a tunnel and just keep churning out the same sort of sounding. I'm not going to, I'm not going to diss them, but say like a band like ACDC. Yeah. You know what you're going to get with ACDC. Sure. Great groove, rock orientated soul music play very loud. You right. know, it's played very loud. I try to make every track that I write. I think it's just tipping my hat to my peers all the time. Sure. You know, I think it makes it more interesting for the listener. So I appreciate you saying that because uh, my second album, which was Too Close to the Sun, is uh, an album where I really experimented with different grooves and different sounds and everything else. And uh, the recording process, I was much better at. There's Caribbean songs on there. There's um, oh yeah. There's uh, rock songs. There's funk songs. There's um, melody songs. There's pop pop rock songs. You know, I, I that's why my head is so full of all different styles of music that I've been listening to, and I've been a session player for best part of 40 odd years so i'm I, i've been on beck and call to um, many guitar players many singers and many producers and they say i want you to play like this guy i want this i want that and everything else i love listening to all styles of music there is no bad music there's only bad musicians you know there is no bad music if you don't like reggae if you don't like reggae uh, you don't listen to it but if you listen to the playing and you listen to the groove and you listen to the soul and the intent of great reggae music, it's off the chart. You know, oh, yeah. it's like soul music. My favorite music of all time, even to this day, is um, is still Wilson Pickett, Sam and Dave, Al Green, you know, the governors. And I listen to the Earth, Wind and Fires. You know, I've played, I've played with the guys in Earth, Wind and Fire. They come and did some sessions for me in L.A. once. So that, that's been what I've been asked to do for my whole career. Um, as a session player, I've had to play, and because I've listened to all sorts of music from A to Z, I've got a, a working knowledge of rhythm and a working knowledge of how those arrangements fit. And I say, try this. What about this? Do you want? He said, somebody says, I'll oh, open up a bit more. You know, a bit more slashing on the hi hat or something. A bit more, bit more movement on the kick drum. As long as that snare sitting there on the two and four, man, it's going to feel great. <laughs> how can people? listen to this music and buy this music uh, the albums all three albums are, are actually out on uh, itunes bandcamp spotify i believe i think they're the three main ones but um angie's just signed me up to bandcamp bandcamp where you can go onto uh, the bandcamp site pete thompson and uh, you see all three albums and two or three videos on there as well so that that's the that's where the latest stuff's going to be yeah bandcamp's great a lot, yeah. a lot of a lot of great stuff on there yeah, I'd heard of, I'd heard about it, but I'd never actually followed it up. And then she said one day, you know, let's have a listen, let's have a look at Bandcamp. She and she, she did me this great web page, you know, for Bandcamp, and mm -hmm. uh, the sound quality is really good on there as well. Oh yeah, 
can you tell us a little bit about your your family background and, and you know where you grew up and stuff? I was born in Bournemouth in England, which is on the south coast. Moved up to Nottingham, which is up in the north. Uh, I've got um, mother and father had seven kids. And while my while my brothers were out playing football and tennis and all the other all the sports you can think of, I was locked away in my room listening to Jimi Hendrix and John Mayle and the Blues Breakers with Eric Clapton, Al Green, Wilson Pickett, all the Tamla Motown catalogue. I soaked up the Tamla Motown catalogue like there was no tomorrow. I started playing when I was 17. I turned professional when I was 19. And my first gig, professional gig, was playing to the troops, uh, the, is it RSO? All the, all the clubs around Germany. Oh, the, the USO? Yeah, all the USOs. Yeah. I, played, I played every um, enlisted man and NCO club in Germany. And wow. we were, <laughs> how's, this for a, how's this for a baptism of fire? I went from playing little pubs in South End to playing in a, in a really decent band, the Merlin Show Band. Wow. We played to the troops. And all these troops, but these guys were being shipped in and out of Vietnam. They were coming back from Vietnam for two weeks, R&R. When, when they weren't on the base, we were playing to the bar staff at the end of the bar, you know. And all of a sudden, the planes would arrive with hundreds and hundreds of guys on R&R. They'd been out in the jungle for two or three years. And they'd come back and they would all sit around in the tables. All of a sudden, the clubs were pack, packed out. Now, we did six sets, six 45-minute sets a night. Started at eight, finished at two in the morning. We did 45 on, 15 off, 45 on, 15 off, right through to two o'clock in the morning. Six nights a week for six months. Wow. So when I, when, I, when I joined that band, I thought I could play drums a bit. When I came back, I could play drums a lot. Yeah. <laughs> we played everything from uh, Tammy Wynette, Blanket on the Ground, CCR, um, Black Soul, Led Zeppelin, you know, all the American bands, yeah. um, all the British bands, all the Beatles catalog, all the all the Stones, all the Stones, all the Kinks, and everything else. And I, and when I learned to play drums, I learned off of playing to records on uh, two sticks on a, on a chair. And I just found that I could play along to the Who, and I could play along to the Beatles and all those songs. And then I realised that um, I could I could play a bit. So Mum got me Mum got me a kit. Soon after that, I was uh, I was packed off to Germany. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you hooked up with Silverhead? I literally got a call from Rod, who used to be in a band I was in back in England, and he was uh, he called me up and said, uh, "Get your ass on a train and uh, come up." and I met this guy called Michael Debar, who was the lead singer of Silverhead, and he's putting a band together. He said, "As far as I'm concerned, you've got the gig. Walk in and play the best you can." Well, I'd just come back from playing six. 6.45 a night for six right. months. I was chopped up, you know. Yeah. Um, it came in and we played three songs. Uh, we played three songs and then three days later I went to Olympic Sound Studios, recorded the first two, tr first three tracks off the first Silverhead album. And uh, they didn't even invite me to be in the band. I was already in the studio. And uh, it was really weird because I wanted them, I wanted to, I, I'd come from a, a mentality, from a, a, an East Coast mentality to a London mentality. If they like you, you're just in the band. It's just that. But I was waiting for somebody to ask me to be in the band. Right. I didn't know whether, I was actually recording tracks on the first album. And a singer said to me, Michael, he said to me, uh, I said, can I talk to you a minute? He said, yeah. I said, Mike, am I in the band? And he said, uh, yeah, of course you are. He goes, 
nobody asked me. He said, well, okay, would you, would you want to be in the band? I said, Geez, okay. And we carried on. We did the first album. So that was the start of my recording career. Now, I, I know that uh, when you were in Silverhead that you uh, supported uh, Uriah Heep, Nazareth, Deep Purple. Uh, Kiss actually opened for you. Mm-hmm. Now, I've, I've got a couple friends that are, uh, I'm in the uh, Deep Dive Podcast Network. It's just a network of podcasts. Uh-huh. And uh, Scott uh, from the Magicians Podcast, which is the uh, Uriah Heat Podcast, actually endorsed by the band, and Nate and John from the Deep Purple Podcast. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you if you have any memories of you know, playing with Deep Purple or Uriah Heap or anything. Oh, memories about those two bands. I lo- um, at the time that I was asked to, we were asked to do the Uriah Heap tour. I I already had four Uriah Heap albums. Oh yeah, so I was in heaven. I also had the first three Deep Purple albums, and Ian Pace was my favorite drummer. Yeah, so I I was I was in hog heaven, mate. I I, I it was like ah. I was, I was watching my idol play. David Byron, who, who I became great friends with, Ken Hensley, I became great friends with. And I'd, and I'd worked with all the guys individually on Mick Box because I played on David Byron's solo album. Mm-hmm. I played on Ken. I played, I toured the America with Ken Hensley and, and England. Five dates into the Uriah Heap tour, I got a call. I got a call um, to my room saying, this is, hi, Pete, this is David. Could you come to my room? So I went to his room and him and Ken were standing there uh, with a, glass of brandy and, and i said um hi guys what's going on he said um do you want to do you want to join the band so i said uh well i'm in a band he goes no he said do you want to join heat i said well well no not really he said why i said well if i if i joined you i'd leave the guys i'd leave our guys to join you he said no we're, we're talking about at the end of the tour and i said really i said well what's wrong with lee lee's a great drummer and he's a great singer and he said well couple of problems that we'd, we'd like to iron out and um but if you're interested and i said well can i think about it he said yeah i left the room i was totally shell-shocked you know because not only was i touring with one of my favorite bands in the world they just asked me to join yeah um so i went back to my room and i was sharing with rod again you know and um i said to him uh, i went quiet for a, for a day or two and um and he said what's wrong and i said um I, i've got I've got this problem. He said, what problem is that? And I said, well, they've just asked me to join your IE. He said, oh, what do you want to go and do that for? I said, well, I haven't. I said, I'm, I'm running it by you. And I said, my answer was, does, lo- does loyalty mean anything in this business? Uh, I, I knew Lee, not personally, but he was actually dating my cousin at the time. So it was, it was almost a family issue, you know, <laughs> and the fact that Lee didn't know anything about it. I do not like going behind people's backs. Right. I just don't do it. And um, I was very loyal to Silverhead because we were on the rise because when we were doing uh, gigs with uh, with those guys, we'd go off and do our own gigs, you know, when we weren't working on the tour. Sure. We were building up. We were building up a hell of a reputation in England, a really good reputation in, in America. And uh, I just couldn't see it happening. I just, you know, even though God, you know, would have been my dream to join that band. Um, I, I stayed with the Silverhead boys, you know, and I, I don't regret it because a few years after when David let, David got kicked out of the band uh, because he had drinking problems and stuff, you know, and he phoned me up, he got my number, phoned me up and said, uh, do you want to come down to the studio? I'm doing solo album. So I said, yeah, that'd be great, David. You know, we'd always kept in touch, you know, but I said no to your eye heave and carried on with my band and that, that was the end of it. Mm-hmm. 
supporting T-Bone Prime Cuts on the Other Side podcast gives you interesting inside views from the talk space where musicians matter. Go to tbpcpodcast.com and click the donate button. All contributions are much appreciated. Why don't you tell us a bit about work on David's record? I started work on his album, uh, Robin George on guitar, Pino Palladino on bass, and we did uh, uh, some tracks for, for David. He then asked me to join the band, you know, would I join the band? Um, I saw a few things down in the studio that rubbed everybody up the wrong way, shall I say? Um, and um, it left a bit of a sour taste in my mouth. And funnily enough, about a week later, I got a phone call from Ken Hensley and said, um, I've just done my solo album. Ian Pace can't do the tour. Would you like to come in and do the tour? Oh, no. Would you come and audition? So I went and auditioned uh, with my friend Denny Ball on bass. He was with Cozy Powell and his brother Dave Ball in a band called Bedlam. We went down there, went down to the uh, east, uh, west coast and recorded some tracks. Um, went to, Sorry, went to rehearsal, rehearsed with him for two days. Then he brought me back a third day. And then there was a week and I didn't hear anything. And then he brought me back for another. He phoned me up and he said, I'd like to, I'd like you, like you to join the Ken Hensley band. The day before David, David had phoned me and said, please, you know, I really would love you to join the band, you know? And I said, I, I can't at the moment, David. I said, I've got so many things on at the moment and it'd be nice to, but I'm really busy at the moment. And then I thought, well, if David, David's offered me the gig, but he's not working, it's a new band. Um, they've got to start from scratch again, build it back up again. But I love Byron's voice, you know, I love David. Yeah. Right. But Ken was actively left your eye heap. He had the album out. He had a tour in front of him um, of uh, the UK, Europe, and, and an American tour booked. And I thought, no, I'm going to go with the more positive of the two. <clears throat> so I ended up joining Ken Hensley for a couple of years. And then when that, or uh, Clem Clemson was on guitar. Brilliant. Um, so Clem, I, you know, I, I've known you for eight or nine years, and I just last night found out that uh, he, that Clem was in demand. I, di- I didn't realize that. I saw yeah. that on their website. Yeah, Clem, Clem's a fabulous player. He's such a great guy as well. As I said, I've worked with some great guitar players. You know? Oh, yeah. While I was doing the Ken Hensley rehearsals, uh, sorry, the David Byron rehearsals, Ken did some keyboards on the album, along with Lou Stonebridge. Mickey Box came in and did the guitars. Mm. So, and, and when you listen back to the track, it's like listening to your right here, you know. <laughs> <clears throat> so after that, cut a long story short, after the Ken Hensley tour in 1982, that ended disastrously, absolutely disastrously. I then gave up the business for about a year because I was so disgusted with what had happened. I went and did other things. So what did you do after the Ken Hensley band? I met a guy called Alan Ross, who was in the Alan Ross band, and he was a singer-songwriter. It had three albums out. Called, the album's called Ross. Three albums out. It had a great voice, great harmonies. I bumped into him at a, a studio called The Chocolate Factory, where lots of people, lots of famous people worked. And we were walking. used to meet people in the corridors, you know. Got working with Alan, started writing songs with him, and that lasted about two years. Then Melanie came over from, from America. And uh, Alan, by the way, bless his heart, I'd waited years to get on British television. You know, I had never done a like TV show in England, and it's like, and it would, which I would still look back and think, God, how did I miss all those shows? And in the week, the two weeks I worked with Melanie, and she's an angel. Gotta say, that Melanie Safka, she's an angel. 
and we got on great together and the band was really good we put a band together around she did a short two-week tour and in that time in one week i did five major tv shows in england <laughs> i was on television five times in one week wow uh, then i worked with nancy griffith uh, uh, with the blue moon orchestra just a couple of just a couple of studio dates and then alan got me uh the gig as basically a house house band drummer for MCA Records and worked with everybody like Bill Biff DeVoe, Cher, um, all those people used to come over and record their backing tracks to play on English television because they weren't allowed to use their backing tracks. So we'd absolutely copy the record perfectly and then it would be it's just a musician's union thing, you know, it's all a big scam, but that was fun. Got to work with some great artists there. And um, that takes me up to about 1979, 19, uh, no, no, Hensley was 81, 82. So that takes me up to. Oh, I was gonna, I was gonna ask you about uh, something about Ken since he, Ken Hensley just passed away recently. Yeah. But I mean, just do you have anything to add about him personally? You know how you got along, how he was. Well, he was great to work with. He was great to work with, and uh, he let everybody do their thing. You know, uh, he had a wealth of material from his solo albums. We obviously did four or five Uriah Heap songs in the show. Um, and um, got a phenomenal review uh, from Sounds and Newspaper in England, a really good review. Uh, so that was good. And David Byron was in the audience for that. So that was a, that was a little un that was a little tickle for me because <laughs> David had just formed a band called Rough Rough Diamond, and he'd injured his foot or something. He was in a wheelchair, and he was at the back calling out to Ken. You know, I remember Ken going on stage, and he was just about to sing July Morning. I remember him looking to the back of the room and saying. It's not going to be easy, David. It is not going to be easy. <laughs> I'll never forget it because he was absolutely crapping his pants because David was there. But um, Ken was a, um, he was a live wire. Um, he was a very talented guy, a, a very talented guitar player, slide player, which he never oh, got. Yeah. He played some really good slide and on a Les Paul. Uh, so that was a kicking sound. His Hammond organ sound speaks for itself, just loud and raucous. But he, he wrote some great songs, Ken. And uh, if you listen to the new, uh, we'll say the newer version now of Uriah Heap, they're still playing his songs. They're still playing him and David's songs. You know? So, you know, kudos to him for that. He was great to work with at rehearsals. He was um, a good man to be around when he was um, able, able to be. I'll leave it there. Okay. Now, I know a little about this story, but it, tell us a little bit about how you met your wife-to-be, because that, that all ties into to yeah. the Ken Hensley thing. Yeah, it does, because um, she had just got a, herself a gig with a road crew from Dallas, Texas, and we turned up at the first gig. Uh, I have no idea where it was, but we turned up the first gig. What? Albuquerque. <laughs> and uh, uh, we, we met. She was... Um, Ken's guitar tech, you know, because she plays guitar. So she, she had the, the job of tuning on the 12 strings, helping the guy in with the, with the uh, helping the guys in with the back line, everything else, setting my drums up, all sorts of stuff. And um, she was really, really good. She was so conscientious. She was so strong. And she was tiny, tiny little thing, humping Marshall 412 cabinets around. <laughs> The guys were doing them, you know. She was putting them all to shame. She's she's always had a phenomenal work work ethic, and um, she's no slouch when it comes to work. She works a little bar, and me and her we met obviously, and excuse me, and 
when I was on stage, she, she used to sit behind me, behind the drums, and she'd have a little table with my sticks, my cigarette, the ashtray, my drinks, my towels, my gloves, band-aids, all sort of just <laughs> So I just look over and it was it was just all there. Um, and she was right behind me. And uh, you know, she's she spent a bit of time on the tour bus with us and she spent a bit, you know, a lot of time. And whenever we were <coughs> not working, uh, and in the evenings we go, we we'd sit and chat. But we always had a good feel for each other. Uh, and um that finished and I had to go back to England and we said goodbye. Some 25 years later, I I joined I joined the modern world and my son got me a laptop and um and he said, right, Dad, open the laptop. This is a you've now got an email address, blah, blah, blah. This is Steve Shell's address, and he's the, the guy who does and I, by then I was working with Robin Trower. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and um he got me connected, should I say, to the to the 21st century. And um, my first, one of my first emails I got was from Angie. She, she'd, been, she'd been looking for me. She, she hunted me down, saw something about me on Steve Shell's site and told Steve Shell. He called me and said, um, is it okay I'll give this person, here's her email address, you know, pop in and say hello. So we popped in and said hello to each other. And we, we spoke on the internet for oh, well over a year, you know, long emails, long chats, live recordings like this and got to know each other and realized that we still were immensely good friends and we had a great trust for each other and my life had fallen apart quite badly um, after the Ken Ensley tour because I'd lost all faith in the business I, I hated the music business oh yeah no. I got fed up with being fucked over and um and I wasn't very good to myself and uh, my downward spiral was for about five or six years and culminating in a conversation I have with my son where he said that I used to be his hero and um, I'm not anymore and he didn't, oh. want to talk, he didn't want to talk to me anymore so I called him up and we spoke and uh, we cleared the air and that's when he said right you're going to come and live in my empty house because I don't want the burglars to come in connect you to the internet like get on with it and just and from that moment onwards my whole life has been actually an upward you know it's to this day it was our anniversary today you know We've been together now for 12 years and uh, after 25 year layoff, it's pretty damn good. And we're both very much in love and we're very much connected. That's awesome. (laughs) Um, Now, (laughs) how did you get involved with Pete Haycock? Ah, my dear friend, Pete. Through uh, the sessions I did at the Chocolate Factory, I used to work with a very, very intensely good bass player called Livingston Brown. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah he, I, I, i've seen him three or four times live and that new record that uh he's on with robin trower and uh maxi priest is amazing too oh good um i've not heard that yet i'm looking forward to it well livingston was one of those guys who you just wanted to be around oh yeah we formed a band together called era and we want uh it was uh three black dudes and myself and um i was singing and playing drums they were doing all the instrumentation i got a call from the studio in London and said, would you, uh, the producer was a guy called Paul Brett, um, who's an amazing guitar player himself. And he called me and said, would you like to come and do some studio work? Of course. I turned up, set, set me drums up, they mic'd it all up. And there's this guy walking around with like fuzzy hair and I thought he was a studio engineer. So I asked him if he'd get me a cup of tea. And he said, yeah, sure. He ran off and made me a cup of tea and he came back and Paul Brett said, oh, have you met Pete? And I said, uh, Pete who? And he said, Pete Haycock from Climax Blues Band. I said, which one? He said, the guy over there with the curly. I said, oh, shit. I just asked him, <laughs> just asked him to make my tea and stuff. You know? 
know who it was and I was so embarrassed. So I said, Pete, I do apologise, mate, blah, blah, blah. And we, he played us five songs that afternoon. We cut and mastered four of them in an afternoon. And then Paul Brett said to me, "Would you, Pete loves your playing, would you like to come back? So we did the first Pete Haycock's Climax album, um, which was um, really good, some great songs on it. Monster, stellar guitar player, great slide player, um, and just a wonderful, wonderful human being. He was the utmost, utmost joy to work with on the road, in the studio, as a friend, just the best, just the best, you know. Wow. Yeah. And he sadly went, you know. Yeah. Back. And um, he was working in Spain with a, a guitar player called Robin George. He also had his own bag, band, I think they were called the Hamburg Blues Band, because he lived in Germany. And uh, he just went out and did what Pete does. He goes out and plays slide and he plays guitar. And he was still playing some of the songs that we played in the, in the old set. But uh, tragic loss, tragic loss. Um, I, I was I was devastated for days when I heard he'd gone, because one of those, they just don't expect him to go, you know. Yeah. And yet at the same time, you thank God it's not you. Right. You know. So after after you played with him, how long was it before you uh, you met Robin Trower? Um, or started I started working for him, I should say. Yeah, I was working with uh, I was working with Robin Trower. I was working with I joined Robin Trower in '86, mm-hmm. and um, that that ended in '88. We did the Passion album, Take What You Need, and started cutting some tracks and everything else. Now, what Robin does is um, he does um, he doesn't let you go. He just doesn't tell you. He's, <laughs> he's, uh, he just doesn't. You know, he just, uh, I did two albums. We had, uh, we ended up with a, a deal with Atlantic Records and we were toured America and everything else. And the next thing I know, we finished that tour. He said, I'll see you in December for rehearsals. And the next thing I know, the lovely Bill Lorden had, had got my gig, you know, and he, you know, he never told me. Um, so that was 86 to 88. And then um, he called me again in, 2003, 2004. Hello, Pete, what you doing? I haven't spoken to him in all those years. No. Hello, Pete, what you doing? Okay, blah, blah, blah. Oh, <clears throat> excuse me. I got, I was on tour with Pete Haycock's band and Livingston in, we did a nine-week tour of Australia. The day I got back from Australia, I was absolutely jet-lagged beyond belief. We'd done uh, about uh, 30 or 40 gigs, something like that, maybe. Got back off the plane, got home, was crawling up the stairs to bed. And the phone rang, and it was Dave Bronze who was playing oh. Robin at the time. And uh, this is this is uh, the '86 period. And he said, "What are you doing?" I said, "I'm just crawling upstairs to bed. Just got back from Australia." He said, "Well, our drummers had to go to London to do some sessions, and we really need to do some four-track recording this afternoon. Can you can you play with us this afternoon?" I said, "Well, I haven't even got a kit. It's still on its way back." He said, "Oh, you can use his kit." I said, "Are you sure?" And he went, "Yes." Yeah. And I knew the drummer anyway. It's a local guy. So I said, okay, let me have a coffee and I'll come down. Well, I've been playing for nine weeks. So what's jet lag when you play sitting there? <laughs> you know, I've played in a lot worse situations. And he, um, I went down there, I said hello to Robin, met, I already knew Dave, and there was a singer called Davey Passerson, who was uh, from Gamma, Ronnie, Ronnie, Ronnie Montrose's band. Yeah, I, I have him on my list to talk about too. <laughs> I, I'll never stop talking about Davey Patterson because... He's um, world class. He's a great soul singer. He's a great rock soul singer. He's a dear friend even now, after all these years. Never had a crossword. Always worked with him great. But anyway, I so I walked in the audition room, sat down. Robin came in and said, hi, Pete, blah, blah, blah. Picked up his guitar. We started playing a few of his riffs. 
you know, I didn't know his songs. Daydream was the only one I knew because it's just one of the finest guitar intros ever on record. Oh yeah, the Daydream. If that did, if you if that if you hadn't bought it by then, you got it by the end of the song. So we played Daydream, played a few others and a few of his riffs. Robin stopped playing and put his guitar down and walked out of the room. <laughs> so I looked at Dave and I said, I'm looking around at the guys, okay, what just happened? You know, and he, Dave said, let's go over to the pub for a drink. So I thought, okay, that did, then that didn't go well. <laughs> the cue was if Robin liked me, he was going to put his guitar down and walk out and make tea. Oh. <laughs> that, that's how it worked, you know. Uh, so I went over to the pub and had some drinks with Dave. And uh, he said, what are you doing for the next two or three years? And I said, well, I'm, I'm in the Pete Haycock band. He said, I, he said, I think you should let that go. He said, we got American tours lined up. And Robin at that time was doing three six-week tours a year. No, four six-week tours a year. He was doing 28 weeks a year in America. I couldn't, I couldn't say no to that. I just couldn't. Yeah. I'm a, a working musician, you know. Yeah. And we agreed a fee. And um, I got a contract through saying that... Um, you know, we got you to be in the band for, and then we recorded the two albums and everything else. And Robbins did all the clubs, and he worked at the bottom, worked his way up to, you know, five, six, seven thousand seaters again. You know, and um, that was great. And then he dropped me. <laughs> yeah, that's when he dropped me. So I didn't get a phone call again till two thousand and three or four, something like that. And then we just carried on, and he reformed that band with Dave Bronze, David Patterson, Robin, and myself. And we recorded an album called uh, Living Out of Time, uh, which was Robin's comeback album. Right. A great album. I, I thoroughly enjoyed myself on that album. I played my ass off on that album. I, I actually, I never pat myself on the back, but on that album, I played my ass off. You know, I wanted to make sure that he didn't drop me again. <laughs> and so I was with him up until 2005, the album came out. So we must have recorded it 2004. And then I last toured with him early 2000. 2012 so i was with him again for a good few years you know and i've not heard from him since <laughs> not a word not a dicky bird now were you, were you on the uh live the royal oak live see i was at that show i still lived in michigan then i did and i didn't know you i didn't know who you were or anything yeah, but i, I, I was the there show? yeah i used to go to the royal oak music theater a lot wow <laughs> there was a band supporting us called um slight return fantastic band you know i was kept in contact with all those guys i keep in contact with a lot of people that i met on the road i've made friends and everything else robin always used to say to me what are you talking to that guy i said um well he's a he's a he's a fan of yours and he's a fan of the bands and we got chatting about sunset and he goes you're a strange boy you are you know <laughs> but um I've, I've still got loads and loads of friends in the music business because i do actually go and talk to them yeah I meet people. I'm, I'm sociable, sociable as I can be, you know. But uh, it was great that you were there. Did you enjoy it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I, I What's funny uh, about your time with him is that I didn't start listening to popular music till late 82 or so. So I didn't I didn't get into Robin until the, the first Robin Trier album I ever bought was Fashion. So, you know, those were the first, those two records that you were on in the 80s were the first two that I got. Uh -huh. You know, and then I, of course, went back and got, you know, all the old stuff, you know, but Living Out of Time and the uh, live DVD from that was amazing too. I'm, I'm proud of that one because um, there's a little story that goes with that album. Um, we knew we were doing a live uh, DVD. Mm-hmm. Robin had never done a DVD before and his fans were asking for a good live show. So when we did the Rock Palast in Germany um, and we had the opportunity, 
The band had only been together four days. That was our fourth gig. <laughs> oh, my God. That was our fourth gig, and nobody, I think there was one clanker in the whole DVD. Wow. And it was shot live. It was edited live as well because they had four cameras. They were doing a live edit. So it was actually pieced together as we were doing the show. So the production of that was very good. The sound of it was very good. Me and Dave Bronze were rock solid that night, you know. And Robin had some of the greatest guitar, some of the greatest guitar playing I've ever seen him do on that show. So I was really pleased it turned out well for everybody. Yeah, I really enjoyed that one. Uh, the uh, now when I was I talked to you the other day, you were uh, you were telling me about uh, you know Robin playing uh, smaller venues. I thought that was that was interesting how you put that. Well, he, he had he had a in the in the seventies when he was at the height of his oh, huge. Robin was playing to. 50, 60, 70,000 seasons. Yeah, stadiums and stuff, all kinds of stuff. He didn't like it. He, he did not like it. He told me that he loved being in the atmosphere of a, of a place that held, you know, 700 people, 500 people, 750, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000. That was great. It was controllable. And I'm talking about the controllable sound on stage. Right. But Robin doesn't play quietly, you know. Oh, no. Robin has to get to a certain level. Our sound checks were the longest in bloody history. You know, <laughs> we travel for eight or nine hours a day sometimes to get to a gig and then do a three-hour sound check. Wow. You know, once the drums were done and the bass and drums were done, Robin would Robin would be fiddling with his sound, with his amps, with his thing, with the grounding, because a lot of gigs sometimes are not grounded and his Stratocaster and his, and his equipment didn't like. There's like a live mains underneath his right. pedal. All sorts of crap, you know, that we had to go through. And he, did, he, he, he didn't have to, but his work ethic is so big. His, I mean, everybody in the band, we just worked our asses off for Robin and with Robin because his standard was so high as a professional musician, touring musician, playing and everything that goes with it. And he, he's dedicated himself to writing at the time of writing whatever album it is, the best he can. And God, he's so prolific as well. I mean, when we, we, we'd be sitting in the van or in the uh, Suburban and he wouldn't talk for hours because he's jotting away little lyrics here and there and everything else. I never really paid much attention to any of his lyrics because I'm, I'm the drummer in the band and I knew certain lyrics, but, I, you know, that wasn't my gig. My gig was to hold the, hold the fort. I, I held the fort while Robin went off. And every night Robin went searching. So you never know when he was going to come back. Some of the solos were set pieces. Songs like Bridge of Size and Daydream, for instance, were just completely open-ended free-form songs because he went searching. A lot of guitar players just go through the motions. Robin never once went through the motion. Wow. You know, I've got so much respect for that. And he taught, he taught everybody in the band to be concise, on time. We never walked on stage later than 9 o'clock when... We were due to go on stage. We'd be in the wings at five to nine. And he'd make sure everybody, I'd be over one side of the thing, he'd be over the other. But he'd make sure we're all ready. When the music finished at the start of the show, we'd all walk on at nine o'clock exactly. You wow. know. And if some if, if there was a technical problem, then maybe we'd be a bit late. But never, no. A couple of times we a couple of times we our journeys were maybe 13 hour journeys and we had no we didn't sound check. <clears throat> we walked straight on stage, you know. We get out the thing, we wash and put a clean T-shirt on and walk straight on stage. No sound check, no nothing. So it was, um, and you work within that sound. We never set up very far apart. We were never like spread right across the stage. We always set up in a little semi, small semicircle. So if we was on a 
50 foot wide stage, we'd be right in the middle of it, you know, and everything would be slightly angled. I mean, as I said, Robin's volume was a problem, you know, for Davies for singing to. Um, can never get the monitors loud enough. I always, and I insisted my drums be behind his cabinets so all the drum mics didn't swell with guitars. Oh, yeah. So we'd, I'd sit back so the back of his cabinet would be two foot in front of me, but therefore I couldn't hear the top and the note. So all I'd, all I'd have in my monitors, one on my left and one on my right, was the vocals in both and just the top end of Robin's notes. So I could just hear his, just hear the lick, but at my volume, not his volume. And that's how we, that's how we did shows. His monitors were deafening. <laughs> oh man, the deafening! We, the bass drum that was coming out of his side fill. I, mean, I used to sometimes have all the drums out my monitors because I had so much drums in his monitors. I played to the room, you know. It wasn't always easy, but you know we did it, and we're a very tight band. Now, what's, what's kind of funny is that he was my first radio interview. Was he? Yeah, and uh, I, I was worried about that because he was calling to the studio. As you say, he called right. He said, "I'll call." I'll, you know, his representative or whoever said he, he'll call you around eight o'clock. He called right at eight o'clock on the nose. Yeah, he would do. Yeah. And uh, he was very precise. He was very nice, but he was very precise. He, you know, 15 or 20 minutes. I can't remember what it was. And at the end of that time, that was it. Yeah. But, and then uh, my fourth or fifth interview on the radio was you. Wow. He was, uh, he's always been a hero to me, but, you know, I, um, uh, I'm, I saw him at, uh, you're talking about the his volume. I saw him at a little club. I can't remember what it was called in Detroit. It wasn't too far away from Tiger Stadium, but the other way, it was actually out of Detroit, but right near there. I wasn't seeing him at Pine Knob, so I said, oh, I'm going to go up close. But big mistake. I was right by the speakers, and I, I couldn't hear for like three days. <laughs> you know, I, I experienced that. One of the, see, Robin uses incredibly heavy strings. Oh, yeah. He uses very heavy strings, and his action is high. He's detuned down a tone. Right. Okay? So he gets a maximum ring on the, on the guitar. He's got very – I mean, I was surprised at just how heavy his strings were. But I remember being in the dressing room at the side of the stage once, and he was playing some just open chords. In fact, he was working out a new song, I think. He was just doodling around, and I walked – from the studio, uh, from the uh, dressing room, in f- just in front of his cabinets to walk up to the drum riser from the front because I couldn't get around from the back. And he played an open E chord. <laughs> I swear to God, I swear to God, it was like walking into a space vacuum. <laughs> I felt my lungs implode and I took a deep <laughs> Honestly, I know my rib cages, and he's standing there, He's standing there with a the univibe going, and he's standing there in this enveloped sound. And that's the sound he has to work against. And that's he goes, okay, that's my sound. Everybody deal with it. And that, that's his attitude. It's like, this is my sound. This is how I play. Deal with it. This is before he even put the volume, the tube screamer on. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know how he did it. I, I, I don't know how he does it for all these years, you know, right. uh, in that sound. I'm lucky I've still got ears left. Supporting T-Bone's Prime Cuts on the Other Side podcast gives you interesting inside views from the talk space where musicians matter. Go to tbpcpodcast.com and click the donate button. All contributions are much appreciated. 
in the in the 90s you got to work on the uh, robert plant fate of nations record i know that got you what a gold and a platinum i got uh, i got a gold from canada um a platinum uh, a gold from america a gold from australia and a gold from canada i think wow you know uh, which was great after being in the business for so long, never picked up an award. I actually picked up my first award um, for the Passion album, actually. I was voted the best indie rock drummer of 1986 or something. So that was my first award. And um, I had to wait until uh, 1993 when I got the call from Robert um, to um, audition for his band. And I was up against Tico Torres, Phil Collins, Richie Haywood, you know, and all those drummers. And wow. for some reason, he, he, he liked me and I, I got to play... Um, I actually recorded eight tracks for the album, and I think I ended up on five. So that was good. And then I got my awards through about five or six months later, you know, which was nice. You know, he asked me to join the band, um, but he, he he asked me, and I said yes, and we discussed money, and he said yes. He told me what the advances would be in the middle of the tour, the beginning of the tour, or the end of the tour. And um, when we finished rehear- when we finished the album, and I, we listened to the mixes, he said, "I'll see you. I'll see you soon. We're we're, we're going to be in Minneapolis in four months' time." Get yourself in shape, you know. Next thing I knew, he was doing a show in London with Michael Leon drums from the Colts. So I obviously, I obviously didn't get that gig as well. And hey, it's top of the tree. It uh, hasn't put me in bad stead because I because I ended up working and I got to play on um, one of the most killer Robert Plant tracks ever, which was "Calling to You." Yeah. Track one, side one, and that was monumental for me because um, I met people that actually bought that album. They learned. They, they actually took up playing drums because they heard that track. Wow. And I've been, I've been on tour with a support band and I was in Norway and the, and the drummer said to me, he said, uh, oh, blah, 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 blah. And I said, uh, yeah, yeah. He said, my favorite song. He said, calling to you, Robert Plant. He said, I learned to play drums because of that song. Wow. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, uh, Pete Thompson's a fantastic drummer. He said, I, I didn't tell him. <laughs> Somebody actually told him about 10 minutes later and he went, you'll be Thompson. I said, oh man, why didn't you take it? You're the reason I'm playing drums. Ah, that was, that was great. Wow. That was brilliant. Yeah. Great moment. Now in between playing with Robert Plant in 93 and then getting back together with Robert Trower in the 2000s, what was your career like? So, in, so after working with Robert Plant, and not getting the gig, um, it was a huge disappointment. It was a huge disappointment as I'd been um, led to believe that the gig was mine. Um, what I needed to do was actually take a rest from music. So what I did was I um, I, jo- um, I went to a landscaping company um, here uh, back in my own, own town. I wanted to change my lifestyle. I wanted to get up at four o'clock in the morning and see the sunrise uh, and be working. I wanted to be around flowers and trees and plants, a lot of nature. Well, luckily enough in South NY, we have a great landscaping company which run by the local council. They gave me my own truck, my own equipment and everything else. They said, right, go and mark out those rugby pitches, go and cut those football pitches, soccer pitches, go and cut the trees down and so on. So go and clear up this and clear up that. And I was my own boss for about two years. And what I did was I... I, I must have walked about 30 miles a day. Wow. And I was getting I was getting chunky and um, I wasn't happy with my lifestyle in the music industry. I, I thought to myself, well, you know, I got some gold albums and blah, but maybe that's that's the end of it. You know, maybe that's the end of it for me. I did this job for about two years 
And I've got to say, I was never happier. I was actually working very hard. I was out in the fresh air every day, a lovely suntan. I was walking 30 miles a day or running 30 miles a day because I was working at a frantic pace, proving that I could go back and well, be myself again. But I, I wanted a job that was outdoors because um, I was spending way too much time indoors, feeling sorry for myself and all sorts of stuff. And when I come down on myself, I really come down on myself. You know, um, so I needed I needed a whole lifestyle change, and I was doing it for about two years. And that, and then one day I was going along the seafront in my my truck and everything else, and I got a phone call from David Patterson, and he said, "What are you doing?" I said, "I'm working." He said, "Well, great, come and have a beer with me." He said, "I'm down the I'm down the front." And the only time David comes to England is to work with Robin, because you know he, he continued working with Robin off and on. So we, um, I pulled up on the pavement, and he was sitting there having the beer, and I. Gave a big hug and everything else and blah, blah, blah. He said, what are you doing? I said, what are you here for? And he said, uh, I'm on a recce, a reconnaissance mission. <laughs> so yeah. I said, yeah, go on. He said, well, I, I got a call from Robin. Robin's flown me over to learn some new songs. Yeah. And he said, uh, Dave Bronze is involved. I said, okay. And he said, um, to be honest with you, he said, we need, we want you back on, on drums. So if you do it, I'm going to do it. And if David says the same thing, I'll only do it if Pete and Davey do it. And uh, so we agreed over a beer. And I said, well, look, I've got a great job here, man. I must be honest. I'm the happiest I've been in ever. I got out of the business and everything else. So I went from being a landscape gardener uh, to being a drummer again. Um, I was working in a club in London, Thursday, Friday. No, I was working Friday, Saturday, Saturday, Sunday lunchtime and Sunday evening in my own in, in a band that I joined, which was a house band back in all the singers that came in. And uh, I was in that band for 11 years. I never let that go. Every time I went away on tour, I gave the seat to someone else. Then I came back. So I was still playing. And also, again, playing all different styles of music, which was good for me. And it was in that period of time that Robert Plant asked me to join and blah, blah, blah. And then when I was working with Robert, uh, Robert Plant, I let the seat go for a few weeks and then went back, got the job with the landscapers, continued to play and so and so, and then Trower called me. And then after Trower, I let the gig go and I stayed with Trower right up until 2011, 2012. Now, when did you move to the United States? 2007. I was actually on tour. Me and Angie had added this relation. Internet. Right. We, we were talking all the time. In fact, every day. I came over to the States and started touring again. And we still spoke all the time via Skype. And I finished one of the tours, went back to England, did a European tour. And when came back to the States again, and she said, why didn't you come and visit? So um, I stayed in England because of my boys. I was still living in England just because my boys were there. And I wanted to remain in contact with them. So at the same time, the music always called me back. Every time I retired, every, every time I gave up the music and visits, I went from zero back up to an international yeah. level. I was very lucky that the people I'd worked with previously were all international level players. And um, so they all had names like Pete Haycock from Climax. Robert Plant from Zeppelin, Robin Trower, uh, Ken Ensley and Dave Byron. They're all big names, you know, in the rock world. So sure. I was very lucky to, to have been bought. When, whenever I retired, I always went back in at a decent level, you know. So I was very lucky like that. And because I've been playing in the club for four nights a week, I was still I still had my chops up and I was still playing regularly. So I wasn't rusty. So when, I, when we started recording Living Out of Time, I was flying, you know. So I was very happy, and I was I was very happy to be back as well because I I was you know even though I did I, I was enjoying the job very much that I was doing, I still felt a bit washed up. About this time, I started picking up guitars and and plonking out some ideas, and um, I've just kept developing that as the years have gone on, and just uh, 
hopefully got a bit better. And uh, well, since I've been here, I've written four albums, you know, so that's a good space. Yeah. When did you start with your own studio that, you know, or with Texas Central Productions and everything? Well, I didn't come to, I didn't come to Texas to play shuffles. Right. right. Oh, yeah. This is, a, I mean, I play good shuffles. I play really good shuffles, but that's all they do here. Yeah. They play R&B, blues, um, and everything else. I didn't come to Texas to sit and compete with all the other great shufflers in the world. But I, I wanted to put a band together, um, and I had a, a singer friend of Michael, Michael Dimitri, just a fantastic singer. And he was living, uh, he was driving trucks at the time. And we contacted him and said, come over, I've met this bass player from a band called Blood Rock. We had uh, a keyboard player and we were rehearsing in the, in the live room. Angie had just bought me. I'd always wanted to have a recording studio. And she built, she had bought me the Studio One Persona setup. I didn't know what it was because it was just a cassette. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, sorry. It was just a D, uh, uh, CD. Right. I didn't realize the whole operating system was on the CD. So I never put it in and played it or loved it. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. And I was, she's the tech monster. I'm, not, I'm the drummer. She's the tech monster. So <clears throat> she'd lined this all up and I said, yeah, but how many tracks have I got? She said, unlimited. Look, got the screens up. And so I said, what? This isn't, she said, this is an actual recording studio. It's, you, there's nothing you can't do if you don't want to do it. So I've been plonking around on an e-tuned acoustic guitar, playing some few licks and everything else and some ideas for songs. And one thing led to another. And then, of course, my band came in and rehearsed. And we rehearsed like three or four days a week. So we just went and mic'd everything up and stuck mics around the drums. And everything we did, we recorded. And I thought, yeah, I like this. You know, I like this because, one, it was my band. Two, I could now record everything. And three, I'm not at the mercy of some tosser engineer that gets me a lousy drum sound. Right. And, and the beck and call... And I was not at the beck and call of when this artist decides to work, I'm going to work. I thought to myself, I've got the bona fide reason now to shape up and get, get some shit done. We've done 35 albums here in, in the uh, last six years. Wow. 35 albums. A lot of them were solo artists. I ended up playing guitars and bass and drums for them because it's cheaper that way, you know. Sure. A lot of drummers, a lot of drummers and bass players that have been playing the clubs and playing dunk, 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 all night long, they're, they're not, they don't hear what I hear. And so I could put on a producer's hat finally and all those ideas that I could hear. And, and the big part of my production, the big part of my recording process is rhythmic. The guitars are rhythmic against a bass, which is playing the off notes, and the drums are playing on time, but there's little time changes going on that's so subtle you don't realise it. And um, I, be, I realise that people really like coming here because we don't look at the clock ever um they book a session and i don't care if we spill over until the track's ready i don't charge a lot of money so it's affordable and what they get is my 50 years experience as a musician a guitar player drummer and bass player mainly and I'm, I'm really good with harmonies um so i helped all the singers out so we'd so we an acoustic artist would come in play play a vocal and an acoustic guitar to a click track i'll add the electrics and the bass and the drums the backing vocals and then they come in and do the vocals and everything else and every reaction is wow you've been busy you know and they feel great and they tell their friends and they come back this last year nothing well covid i yeah. can't be, i can't be around people i can't trust i can't trust players that i can't trust the people i don't know where they've been what they've been doing exactly 
with. And I'm a very high risk person at my age to, to go down with COVID. So I stay and get on with my own stuff, which is great. Now, I was going to ask you, uh, as you always sang too, because you mentioned earlier about the being the drummer and the singer in, in a band. But I mean, I, I was surprised at how well you could sing. Really? Yeah, you know, when I first heard you. And you know, that was before you ever recorded the theme song from a radio show and then for this podcast too. I've always, always wanted to sing. Mm-hmm. I'm not very good. I I know, I, I tend to write every, I, I tend to write in uh, E, G, A, or C. Those those chords, the, those frequencies are good for me. I suddenly start plonking away in D minus seven and I go, oh, that's nice. Because then I suddenly realize I, there's somewhere else I can go vocally. I'm not a very good singer. I know how to make it work. So that, that's all I can say on that really, because I wish I was Davey Patterson. I wish I was Paul Rogers. And I wish I was, you know, Eric Bibb. I'm not. The, the vocal stamp I put on my songs, which is very, very heavily harmony based, is um, is the thing I've worked really hard on. Yeah, I, you know, Terry, I, I get away with it. <laughs> I, I get away with it. I go, I go and watch Daryl's house and I see Daryl sing and I go, oh, fuck. I'm, ah. You know, what's the point? Give up. I just half asked because it's me. Go on, then. You know, when you uh, came up with the idea to record a theme song for the radio show, I, I was totally surprised. How did that come about? That do you know do you want to know how that story started? Yeah. Okay. It's a bit ACDC-ish. Yeah. I was dri- <laughs> I was driving along the road with my daughter in the car and she was listening to ACDC. And she's walking out to it in the front of the car. And I said, that's so easy to do. And she said, what? And I said, ACDC music. It's really easy to play. There's no no great mystery to it. She went, go on then. I said, what? She said, go on then, write one. <laughs> and that's how you got the theme tune. <laughs> because I, I was doing a song for my daughter and I never got around to putting vocals on it, but it was a pretty decent backing track. And I liked the energy of it, right? Right. That's why it started. Dan, Dan. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, it was a, 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 an intention to do an ACDC track that I'd I, written. I can totally hear it now. I, I, I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. So I listened. Uh, so I put some loops on it. I went and recorded some drums, put the bass on, did the guitars and everything else. And I just packed it away. And then we met soon afterwards. And uh, I just happened to mention, you know, blah, 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 you got a theme tune. And he said, no. I said, well, do you mind if I, would you like me to write one? The first thing I sent, the first thing I sent you, I did the voiceover, you know, just, you know, and you told me what to say in the certain places. Yeah. And the backing track, I sent it to you and you loved it. And you used it for what, five years? No, eight years. Eight years. <laughs> wow. Here's a bit of the old radio theme song for those that haven't heard it. T-Bones. Prime Cuts. It's on the air, baby. Are you ready?
So that's how that one started. And the second one. Uh, yeah, the one for this podcast. Yeah, on the other side. Yeah. It was a, a guitar lick I had. I had that line in my, in, in my computer somewhere that I was working on at the time. And I brought it up and I thought, T-Bones podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I thought T-Bone, that, and it was still very similar melody-wise. Oh the, yeah, yeah. So I thought, well, let's let's keep that because you are um, you, you're a brand, you know. So I thought we can change the whole backing track, but still use the T-Bones, the Prime Cuts, and I thought, okay, yeah, that works. He put me on the Sherry King, and she sent me the lyrics, and then sort of said replace those in certain areas. Did that, and it took I took me an hour. Yeah, I couldn't believe how fast the you know, the turnaround was. Yes, because the, the track was the track was already in the can. Yeah, as an idea for a song. But when I when I played it to you, and you went, "Oh, well, that's great!" And I went, "Really? Okay." That's the first thing I sent you. You know, sure. uh, it worked <clears throat> out great. I'm I'm really happy. Why don't you uh, tell us a little more about you know your your time with Alan Ross and with Melanie and stuff? Well, Alan was really good for my session career because uh, certain things have taken a nosedive, and uh, he brought me back up to being. Uh, as I said, I worked uh, five TV shows in a week after being never on English television. I suddenly swamped it. And Melanie Sacker, as you know, has had many hits. And she's been around and she's done, I think she's done 50, 50 odd albums. Wow. Uh, she's had Grammys for uh, Beauty and the Beast, the theme music for Beauty and the Beast. She wrote that. And she's just the sweetest girl to work with. And she, I mean, she's a real old hippie in the, in the greatest sense of the word, you know but a lovely, kind soul. I had so much pleasure working with that lady. And uh, she allowed me to play what I wanted, be myself. And she flew me to LA to uh, record at North Star Studios in Malibu. She wanted to, she was cutting five tracks off the new album. Alan Ross and I flew over and we went to this studio at the top of a huge hill, lovely studio. And we, we set about recording. The second day's recording, we walked in the studio and Bob Dylan was in the studio. There's only one studio there. So Bob Dylan, uh, while we were recording, Bob Dylan walked in, walked around the studio, sort of didn't acknowledge anybody, uh, and then proceeded to open up every cupboard in the studio, leave the doors open and all the drawers, and look like he was looking for something. So the engineer, when he, when Bob went out to the to the kitchen, and we stopped the recording, we said, is that Bob Dylan? And he, yeah. So what's he doing? He said, oh, I don't know. He often comes up and does this. So I said, what, just look through the cupboards? He said, yeah. He comes up on his uh, comes up on his motorbike, looks through the cupboards. So I went into the kitchen. I thought, I'm not going to miss this opportunity to say hello to Bob Dylan. Melanie had gone down to L.A. to do some shopping. So it was just me and Alan and the bass player in the studio. So I went to the kitchen on the pretense of making a cup of tea. So Bob's out there opening the cupboard doors. So I said, hi, Bob, how are you? And he went, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, uh, anything I can help with? Are you looking for something particular? No, 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 no. I said, oh, okay, okay then. Well, I hope you're okay. Oh, yeah, 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 I'm fine. Thank you. And he left. <laughs> so I went back in the studio <clears throat> and I said, that's Bob Dylan. I've just met Bob Dylan. It's like, wow, you know, one of those moments. We decided to get a keyboard. So that was Bob Dylan. 
that's the Bob Dylan bit. Then we went and said, right, we need a keyboard player to put some tracks on. The engineer said, well, let's get uh, the guy from the band. I can't think of his name at the moment. Garth Hudson. Who? Garth Hudson. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Garth Hudson. So we phoned Garth up. He said, yeah, I'll be up in a couple of hours. Four hours later, he walks in with his Fender Rhodes and his amp and his pedals and his leads. And his, and then we all loved his Hammond in. And everything else, set up in the studio and then spent the next two hours plugging everything in. Now we got him, we got him to stereo line out. So, and all the time he's setting up his equipment, we're playing the track to him through the speakers, right? It's just incessantly playing all the time. Hours later, it's noisy Hammond, noisy roads, noisy leads, you know. And uh, and then after all that time, he said, "Right, what track are we doing?" <laughs> so we said, "So we said, well, we're doing this one. We've been playing you all the time. Okay, can you give me a chord sheet?" <laughs> it's A, E, and D, basically, on a turnaround. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, but write the chords down for me anyway. So we wrote the, wrote the chords down for him and gave it to him. And, um, well, let's just say Garth was a little bit out there. You know? <laughs> so we recorded him for two hours. He couldn't get he couldn't get a verse right, a chorus right, a verse right, a chorus right. And then uh, we had to get this keyboard track done. So we said, okay, Garth, we got it. Thanks very much. Picked his check up for 600 bucks, right? And left the studio with a check. We immediately listened to what he'd done and none of it was keepable. We wiped it and the engineer said, oh, Christ, we're in, we, Melanie's coming back. She'll be here any minute. We've got to get keyboards done. So he said, oh, I know Larry, Larry from Earth, Wind and Fire. He lives down the bottom of the hill. And I thought, Larry, Earth, Wind and Fire. Uh-huh. like this. Bob Dylan, Garth Hudson, and Larry all in one day. I was like, heaven. So we finished our track. You know, we were just hanging around for keys. They phoned up phoned up Larry and they said, Larry, can you make it? He said, uh, he's got a, a tuxedo on. He said, well, I'm just tuxedo with me and my wife. We're going to a, a gala award dinner. And they said, look, we've got our roads here. All we want you to do is come and do one keyboard track, three chords, A, E, and D. And he goes, okay, I'll swing by. So... He turns up looking like a million dollars in his tux, ready to go to the Grammys or something, you know, with his wife, beautiful wife and his his son. He sat down, he said, right, what's, what's the song? We played it to him and he went, okay, roll it, right? He recorded a left-hand, left-hand bass track with a right-hand chord sequence. And then he said, he said, did it perfectly in one take all the way through. Wow. We gave him another track and said, do you want to put Hammond? He said, Look, I hear a Hammond part. So he played a Hammond part. And then gave him another track and he played like a Gliss part. And he was in and out of the studio with another check for 600 bucks in 45 minutes. <laughs> now, that's led me up to Melanie coming back. She came back from downtown. Everybody left the studio. It's just me and Melanie. And I'm sitting on the porch and the sun's going down. I'm overlooking the Mal- Malibu seafront, you know, way up in the hills. And she got a guitar, she sat me, and I'm sitting on the steps, and she sat behind me in the chair, and she said, Pete, do you mind if I run some songs by you? I said, no, that'd be wonderful. So she sat there on the steps, leaning against Melanie's knees, and she's playing an acoustic, and she sang seven songs that she never sang to anybody, one after the other. And I had my own personal little concert with Melanie Safka. The sun was going down in the Malibu Hills, and it was a fantastic day. And that's what she's like. She's an absolute dream. There you go. 
I was just thinking, I've just thought about it again. Bob Dylan, Garth Hudson, Larry from Earth, Wind and Fire, and a, and a personal Melanie concert all in one. All in one. <laughs> That's a day, just a day I'll never forget. Yeah. Pete, if you could tell people again, where can they pick up Far From the Delta in your prior two records? Where, where can they go? You can get all my three albums. Or, and, and also, you can certainly you, you can listen to them all. Which is which is nice, you know. So you can pre- preview. You don't want to buy an album. You can buy a single off the album or everything else. Um, it's on Bandcamp, Pete Thompson, and uh, it's also on Spotify. And I think it's on iTunes and maybe one other thing as well. But Bandcamp is basically where you can listen to it and buy it. And I hope you like it because uh, I had great fun doing them. Uh, labor of absolute love. So far, I'm happy with what I've done. I'm quite happy with what I've done. And there's more to come. Excellent. And now we'd like to have you back when this next record, which you've just finished, when you release that, we'll have you back on the podcast. That'll be fantastic. I'd love to come back. And I'm really excited for you, being this new podcast thing that you're doing. Um, I'm sure you must miss the radio show because it ran for a, a long time. And you had many, many, many fans on there. And the one thing I loved about, you know, the Prime Cut show, radio show, was that you did play the music that you liked. Yeah, it wasn't a format. It was it was it was almost random, which made the radio interesting. And um, you you're obviously doing the same thing with the podcast. So Terry, I wish you the best of very all the best with 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 the new show, and I hope it's a huge success for you. Thank you very much. We'll see you next well, time. You're welcome, mate. Thanks, Terry. Special thank you to Pete Thompson for being so kind with his time. And be sure you go to PeteThompson1.bandcamp.com. That's Pete Thompson, and it's the number one, PeteThompson1.bandcamp.com. Also, be sure to go to TBPCPodcast.com, and you can find all our socials there. That's TBPCPodcast.com. And be sure to click that donate button. Now you all have a good week.